from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts like, share, and subscribe, it just might help our little community grow. So this week's podcast was voted to be for Alex Murdoch, which has been a hot topic in the news for a bit, but I shall do my best to see what I can find that perhaps not everyone knows. I know he prefers to go by Alec. I'm going to call him Alex. I have heard their last name pronounced Murdaugh and Murdoch. I heard Buster pronounce it as Murdoch in court, so that's how I'm going to pronounce it. So, here we go. Richard Alexander Murdoch was born on May 27, 1968 in Hampton County, South Carolina. Now, we will skip what was going on in the world at that time of his birth because we are talking about a very prominent family dynasty that goes back a plethora of generations. Hampton County, South Carolina is in the southernmost area of the state and it borders with the state of Georgia. It is rural, remote, blanketed in a thick forest of trees. While there are some very small cities housed within this county, the land still appears quite virginal, untouched by humans for the most part. It is beautiful and quite near the ocean. For people who enjoy outdoor sports, mostly, you know, hunting and fishing, this area is perfect for that. In fact, fishing and hunting enthusiasts from all over are attracted to this area, and much of it is swampy, especially along the rivers, and most of which is, again, heavily wooded. And it was somewhat around this area that the first Murdoch family member immigrated from Ireland in the 1600s. His name was James Murdoch. Born in 1624 in the southeast part of Ireland, at some point in his earlier life, he made the long and arduous journey by boat to the New Lands, making his start in Virginia, later being buried in what is now North Carolina. So he had children, those children had children, and on the lineage went, settling for several generations in what is now South Carolina. 
Lazarus Murdoch, born in 1774, had three children. His son, Josiah Putnam Murdoch, with his wife Mary, had children. One of them they named Josiah after his father, born in Charleston, South Carolina, in 1830. Josiah Jr. married and had children, and one of his sons is where the story of this family truly begins. His son was Randolph Murdoch, born in 1887 in Hampton County, South Carolina. Josiah Jr. had been a successful and wealthy businessman, and Randolph had grown up pretty privileged. He was described as the ultimate, quote, go-getter, joining all of the clubs and being an officer in most all, and he was quite athletic. He attended the Naval Academy in Annapolis and went on to the University of South Carolina Law School before returning home to the Murdoch's first family firm. He married Etta in 1914, and they had Randolph Jr. the next year. The couple had another son three years later, but Etta died that same year, and Randolph Sr. went on to marry sometime later. Now, Randolph Sr. founded the civil litigation law firm specializing in personal injury. Then he was elected solicitor in 1920 for the 14th Judicial Circuit, a large swath of South Carolina covering five counties. A solicitor is basically a lawyer who gives legal advice and represents the clients in the courts. They deal with the business matters, contracts, conveyance, wills, inheritance, etc., it is important to note that this man was a very well-respected. The citizens of this area absolutely liked and respected this man. He served on any committees and boards that were to improve the area, spent his own money to better the local community, all the things. His son, Randolph Jr., who went by the name Buster, would have been just five years old. So Buster grew up went to law school, married Gladys, and they seemed to only have one child, a son they named Randolph in 1939, at least as far as I could find. A year after Randolph Sr.'s grandson was born, it was said that he had been, quote, battling an illness of some kind, which is rumored to be terminal stomach cancer, as he had had, you know, a couple of hospital admissions within the last year, but felt well enough to visit a friend one summer evening in 1940. It was while he was on his way home late that night, close to 1 a.m., when he would meet his end. The official story is that his car mysteriously stopped at a railroad crossing. A freight train slammed into Randolph Sr.'s car, killing him instantly. That's the official story. Only the train conductor's story was quite different. His statement was that Senior's car was near the crossing and that he had actually waved at the train as it was speeding toward him. As the train got closer, the car rapidly moved forward and ended up on the tracks as the train hit it. His body was allegedly found 150 feet away from the crossing. Officially listed as an accident, it is highly speculated that he had either been drunk or had decided to take his own life. His son, Buster, took over the family business, you know, so to speak, and became the new solicitor, then promptly sued the train company 
in the sum of $100,000, or the equivalent of about $2 million today, for the accident. It was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. Buster also graduated from the University of South Carolina, like his father before him, and had been practicing law for a couple of years in his father's firm, Murdoch & Murdoch. So he remained the prosecuting attorney for the 14th Judicial Circuit until he died. Now, as positive and well-respected as his father had been, Buster wasn't said to have been bad, you know, per se, but he did get arrested for alerting bootleggers as to information he got from the authorities so that they could move their stills and equipment and not get caught. So there is that. Perhaps a rebel, but didn't mean any harm, and no one really had anything negative to say about him. His obituary states, quote, Best known as a plaintiff's attorney, he represented the poor and disadvantaged, never having turned away anyone seeking his aid. End quote. His list of accomplishments is very, very long for what it's worth. But suffice to say, he continued the family lineage, becoming one of the most influential people in this area, as his father had been and on back. So again, a year after Buster's son, Randolph III, was born, Buster's father died under kind of mysterious circumstances. Randolph III, whose nickname was Handsome, attended public schools in Hampton County and graduated from Wade Hampton High School in 1957. In 1961, he married Libby and graduated the same year from the University of South Carolina. In 1964, he graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School and began practicing law with his father in the family firm. Four years later, Alex would be born. So that is the Murdoch family ancestry down to our main character. It is thought that Alex and a few generations before him had never known poverty or struggle, that many generations of the Murdoch family were born into privilege unlike anything most of us could ever imagine. And that hasn't always necessarily been true. One of them had been born at the end of the Great Depression and his father simply didn't have the money to send him to college, so he had gone on a football scholarship. The work isn't easy when dealing with gruesome crime scenes and terrible rapes and some of the criminals, and the pay wasn't always fantastic. Some describe the family as decent people. Others describe the family as being like the mafia. The takeaway is that they held an incredible amount of influence and power over the local area. This is important to remember. Alex is one of four children to Randolph III and Libby. He has an older brother, Randolph IV, who goes by Randy, who also went into the family business of being a lawyer. Then Alex is sibling number two. He has a younger brother, John, who actually didn't go into law. Sources said that he started two equipment rental companies. Now, there is also a sister, Lynn, but I wasn't immediately able to find her birthday to determine where she falls in the birth order. Now, believe it or not, in the time I gave myself for research, I found it actually very difficult to find out much of any early life information on Alex. 
I watched an interview with a woman who went to school with one of his brothers who has taken it upon herself to keep track of the local ancestry and whatnot. And I've linked that interview in the notes if you want to watch. But in general, she states the family are well-meaning people, good at reading, first-time criminals, wanting to do good in the community, helping people far more than creating any level of scandal. One story she told is that they have worked the law, so to speak, in their favor to keep people from being served foreclosure papers just long enough for them to be able to get money together to make their mortgage payments. You know, stories like that. That, sure, there are always rumors of how they would use their influence to bend things in their favor, but overall a decent enough family. She said that the one person in the family that didn't seem um, sincere, really, was Alex. She indicated that he gave the impression that if one didn't benefit him in some way or another, he wasn't going to waste his time interacting, that he would be cordial, nice, you know, not rude, but he certainly didn't come across as terribly interested in people that didn't serve an immediate or future purpose for him. I think you get the idea. He went into the family business, not as much as it was a passion like his older brother, Randy, that he wanted to make any kind of difference, but more so that it was just the path that was laid before him and he just, you know, walked it. It was specifically said that Alex was just more into Alex than anything else. But again, I really couldn't find any specific information about him during his childhood, but I think we get the gist. What I do know is that in 1986, he graduated from high school and went on to college at the University of South Carolina, you know, shocker. It was simple. That is what a Murdoch did. Now let's talk about his wife. Margaret Kennedy Branstetter, known as Maggie, according to an article written for the New York Post, was the granddaughter of a humble barber from Kentucky. Her parents had been high school sweethearts who met in tiny Horse Cave, Kentucky around 1960. They crossed the border into Tennessee to get married because they were underage in Kentucky. Maggie's father actually got three job offers after he completed college from IBM, Ford, and DuPont. He once said he specifically got his dad's blessing to go with DuPont, even though his father had always been a Ford man. Maggie was born while her parents were living in the Nashville area, but Terry's job with DuPont led him to be transferred to the Wilmington, North Carolina area, and then to Unionville, Pennsylvania. Maggie attended high school there. One of her high school friends stated, quote, We had our little cliques, and we ran after boys and did a little partying and drinking. But I think her dreams were what she was taught. She was from the South, and the Southern dream for a girl at that time was to finish college, maybe. But more importantly, find a husband, get married, and have kids. End quote. Her father's last job with DuPont took him to Cooper River, South Carolina, and Maggie enrolled at the University of South Carolina, where she met Alex Murdoch, one grade ahead of her. Now, he was Maggie's first real boyfriend, sources said, but her decision to marry him came at a price. 
A friend said, quote, he said she'd have to move to Hampton with him, the friend said of the bleak, rural town where the Murdochs have ruled as both local prosecutors and civil attorneys, but where there isn't so much as a Walmart. They got married in 1993. Then in 94, Alex was admitted to the South Carolina bar and had been practicing ever since. Alex was known for, quote, representing injured people in all areas of personal injury law, including trucking cases, products liability, and wrongful death, end quote. He also served as a part-time prosecutor for the 14th Judicial Circuit. People said Alex was an excellent lawyer, very good at his job, but he also came across as a bit of a bully. Maggie herself became a full-time housewife and mother. So Alex and Maggie had their first son, Richard Alexander, whom they called Buster, in 1996. Their second son, Paul Terry, in 1999. Buster, who sports that fiery red hair, is described as pretty easygoing and well-adjusted. Paul was more of an outdoorsman, a bit more rowdy and outgoing. Now, Maggie loved both of her children. You must understand that. But it was said that she fawned over Buster far more than she did Paul, and the difference seemed to be noticed by all of Paul's friends. Buster did what was expected of him nearly every step during his childhood and into college. You get the impression that you know, he knew his place, fell into line, and did what he knew he had to, to follow the path laid before him. Pierce described him as privileged, but not necessarily snobby. They said he was quiet, and they didn't know him really all that well, but that he was studious. He went on to graduate high school, went to college, and joined a fraternity, which made Maggie extremely proud, as she had been in a sorority during her college days as well. One would assume that his father, Alex, watched as his firstborn son was setting himself up to continue the Murdoch legacy, and he encouraged that. But do not doubt that following in his family's footsteps was exactly what young Buster wanted. Now, Paul's friends growing up said that they loved him. You see, Paul was very outdoorsy, one could say, and he and his friends obviously and absolutely loved to go fishing and hunting together. He was outgoing, bit of a goofball, one of his friends said, quote, he was just as funny of a person as you'd ever meet, end quote. Of course, others described him as arrogant. Things were either his way or the highway, so there is that. According to the Netflix documentary, Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal, Paul's former girlfriend spoke about how Alex was more than happy to let Paul and his friends sneak through the back door of the large law firm, and he would offer the teens alcohol to drink. And really, many people spoke about how very normal it was to see the family drinking alcohol. There were photos shown of Paul holding a wine glass at a family function, beer cans strewn about. So it was abundantly clear that Alex and Maggie were well aware of their son's drinking and, if not flat out encouraged it, were at least turning the other cheek, as they say, and not caring that he did. And when Paul drank, 
He drank to excess and would sort of turn into a different person that his friends named Timmy. So if Paul was highly intoxicated, they called him Timmy. And with the pictures and videos I've seen, I'd say that's a fair assessment because it did seem that his face would, you know, change and he would actually look a bit different. He would go from being sweet and funny and down to earth to combative, argumentative, but his friends were not scared of him. They were careful to say that. I didn't get that impression that they were scared of him at all. Paul just loved being the center of attention. That part was quite obvious. But you also get the impression that because Paul was uncertain about the path laid before him, he felt like he was the black sheep of his family. He didn't seem to have that passion or drive to continue the family lineage of practicing law. In fact, it seemed as though he felt like he was a disappointment to his family. But Alex and Maggie had a housekeeper that really kind of became a beloved mother figure to Paul from the time when he was just a toddler, and her name was Gloria. She had originally worked for Alex's parents, but she began working for Alex and Maggie, and it seemed to be a great fit. Paul bonded with her, and they shared a very special relationship. Paul was also quite close with his grandpa, Randolph III. So we are all now fairly well acquainted with all of the main characters of this story. So the beginning of the main parts of the scandals, even though it goes a bit further back than this, but the main story start in July of 2015. Late at night, a man found the body of a young man in the middle of the road out in the middle of nowhere and called 911. The body belonged to Stephen Smith, who had obvious blunt force trauma to his head. His car was found three miles away with his wallet still in it, though they tried to say that he had run out of gas and was walking to get some. 7.30 a.m. the next morning, Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, heard on the radio that they had found a body out on a back road and she called her daughter saying she had just heard someone had thrown, quote unquote, a body out and did she know who it was? Her daughter said, no, she didn't. But her daughter did ask her if she had heard from Stephen because he had never made it home. That is when Sandy said she knew it had been her son that they found. The authorities deemed it a hit and run. So a bit about Stephen, please, out of respect. He had been the consummate entertainer from his rather humble childhood. He was sure of himself, outspoken and fun. His friends described him as the annoying big brother that you absolutely love. Stephen also went to school with Buster Murdoch, but more about that in a minute. So at the scene on the back road, police officers tried looking for car debris anywhere because if a car hit a person they didn't see in the middle of the night, it would have damaged the car for sure. This is common sense, only the officers found no such debris, no glass, no tire marks, nothing. They were confident that it had not been a wreck, that it had been a murder. But the higher-ups, if you will, refused to say that it was anything other than a hit and run. There was a refusal to investigate. They didn't want to investigate why Stephen was walking the wrong way to the gas station. 
They refused to investigate why his phone was still in his pocket unused and undamaged or why his nearly unlaced shoes were still on his feet and that the only significant injury was to his head, which is not what the carnage from a hit and run at around 55 miles per hour would leave. You see what I'm saying? Randy Murdoch, which is, again, Alex's older brother, contacted Stephen's family and offered to help them and immediately wanted full access to all of Stephen's electronics, his usernames and passwords to all of his social media, I mean everything. Later, as Sandy was driving to the funeral home to begin making arrangements, she saw Randy and Alex Murdoch along the road where her son had been found. For as rigorously as Randy said he would represent the family for free, it was indeed quite intense, as if he and his brother were desperate to try to cover something up. That was the feeling. So the overall rumor was such that Stephen was gay, and he was accepted for who he was by his family, certainly. But, well, you know, if you are from a very small town, you know how that would have been for Stephen. So two weeks before his death, his sister indicated that he had begun to act a bit, you know, differently, secretive. After he was found dead and questions began to rise, those brave enough to speak about what they knew pointed at the Murdoch boys and really at Buster. After Stephen's death, Buster seemed to have, at least socially, fallen off of the map before his death, Stephen told a few people that he had been, quote, messing with a prominent member of, of Hampton County and that if he said who it was, everyone would be absolutely shocked. The rumors were that Buster and a couple of other boys had gotten into an argument with Stephen and that he had been hit in the head with either a two by four, which is a wooden plank for those that aren't familiar, or a baseball bat and dumped out on the road, which would have been much more consistent with the crime scene and injuries found. So even though Buster's name had been brought up by over two dozen people to law enforcement regarding Stephen's death, he was never interviewed or charged with any connection to this case. After, he went on to the same college to take the same path as his father and the men before them, but he was actually expelled for plagiarism and therefore did not finish law school. So then the next family scandal involved Gloria, the all but surrogate mother to Paul and housekeeper to Alex and Maggie, if you remember. So in July 2018, three years after Stephen's death, Gloria allegedly suffered a severe head injury when she fell down the front steps at Alex and Maggie's home. She suffered a stroke and died. And even though this was a supposed trip and fall and therefore an accident, the coroner was not notified, there was no autopsy, and her death certificate said that she had died of natural causes. And though her sons were awarded an insurance settlement, by 2021, they had not received any money. It is believed that Alex has been, I believe, officially accused of diverting those insurance payouts to Alex's own bank account. He never told her sons that the insurance company had indeed agreed on a settlement. Four years later, in February 2019, which is still pretty chilly even for South Carolina, 
Paul had a friend group, and they hung out together quite a lot and had for years. They paired up in couples in recent years. Paul was dating Morgan. Anthony was newly dating Mallory. Connor was dating Miley. They spent quite a lot of time together hanging out, riding through the plentiful waters in boats, swimming, bonfires, fishing, hunting, you name it. Very typical, all-American, late teenagers doing what young adults do. Only, Paul and his friend group also drank together. On that fateful night, very long story short, the group had been drinking a bit, 19-year-old Paul, quite a lot, and Paul smacked his girlfriend a couple of times. You see, his alter ego, Timmy, was in full force. He was so intoxicated. The friend group was very upset at him, as anyone would be. Paul began zooming at very high speeds on the water. He crashed his boat into a bridge. Though there were injuries, one friend lost their life, Anthony's girlfriend, Mallory. Once they got their surviving kids to the hospital while searching for Mallory, the narrative about what happened and specifically who was driving the boat was already being manipulated by Paul. Everyone else stated that Paul was driving the boat. Paul was pointing fingers at his friend Connor, and he was desperate to get someone to let him use their phone so he could call his grandfather, and yet at the scene had been walking around with this big smile on his face because he felt he would suffer no consequences. All the while, Mallory was just gone. Hospital security camera footage shows the other kids being brought in, looking scared but calm. Paul, on the other hand, had to be restrained on his gurney, though he didn't suffer any significant injuries because he was so belligerently drunk. Security footage then shows Paul's father, Alex, and his grandfather, Randolph, coming into the hospital together. They immediately began trying to quarantine Paul off from answering any questions. The duo then began to continue Paul's work of manipulating everyone about who exactly had been driving the boat, trying to plant seeds of doubt in some, or trying to convince others to lie and to say that Connor was the driver, which he was not. Now, do you see the problem here? The elder Murdochs weren't asking about any updates as to whether or not Mallory had been located and, in fact, Someone heard Randolph basically say she was gone and no need to worry about her anymore. Oh my God. No, they were telling all parties to not say Paul had been driving. So Connor's parents lawyered up and needless to say, they did not hire a Murdoch. To make a very long story short, Mallory's remains were found days later downstream. No one would lie for Paul and he went to court. His bond was set at only $50,000 and the charges were going to stand, but never get it twisted because Paul wasn't arrested. They took his mugshot in the hallway. He pleaded not guilty and did not set foot in a jail cell. People were rightfully incensed, to say the least, and then it was just the hurry up and wait for the case to go to trial. However, Anthony... Mallory's boyfriend and one of Paul's very best friends said that later, Paul carefully approached him and sincerely apologized for what had happened, and Anthony said that he did forgive him, that Paul was a lot of things, 
but unremorseful he was not, so take that as you will. And then during all of this, it became pretty well known that money was disappearing from the firm, and it was said that Maggie had hired someone to investigate where her and her husband's money was going. It was also rumored that she had contacted a divorce attorney, but other sources said that that wasn't true. Regardless, Maggie wasn't an idiot, and she knew something was going on with not only their finances, but also knew money had been misused from the firm her husband and his family had. And her questions weren't only for her. It appears the family had been under one investigation after another for years regarding wrongful death, corruption, insurance fraud, defrauding their clients, witness intimidation, as well as drug and alcohol-related charges. It had also come out that Alex himself had had a years and years long addiction to painkillers, opiates. So, remember that Gloria's sons had not received any of the settlement money from their mother's death? Well, it was about to be discovered in 2021. Then in early June 2021, two years after the boat accident, 52-year-old Maggie and 22-year-old Paul were shot multiple times and were murdered at night, their bodies found by Alex on their property. It is believed that Paul had been shot multiple times first, and that Maggie had run into the scene after hearing the shots, and therefore had to be taken out as well. She was shot multiple times, fell to the ground, and was shot at point-blank range again. Alex at first stated he had gone to his mother's for dinner and came home to find his wife and son murdered. But he later admitted to being home, but still denied murdering his wife and son. If you'd like a play-by-play -play of that murder, I've put a link to a YouTube video in the notes that goes into detail, but it's pretty brutal. And that was the story at first. The 911 call itself sounds pretty sincere. The local media interviewed for the HBO special Low Country, the Murdoch Dynasty, said that after the murders, the town went quiet. No one would really say anything other than the family were nice people. It comes across as a bit eerie, if you ask me, but there was a very real sense of fear within the local community, whether they knew too much or they feared they would be next. Three months later, Alex claimed that he had been shot in the head while trying to allegedly change a flat tire on the side of the road, though the wound was not fatal, but his skull was fractured. And then they discovered his tire had been slashed, so the investigation began with the idea that it might be a vengeance scenario for Mallory and that many people believed Paul would escape justice, and that makes sense. In September 2021, it was announced that a former client of Alex's had been arrested for having conspired with Alex to kill him in the roadside shooting so that his remaining son, Buster, would receive a $10 million life insurance payout. Smith was charged with assisted suicide, aggravated assault and battery, and insurance fraud. Alex, suffering from, quote, massive depression and wanting to kill himself, admitted to concocting assisted suicide as a murder scheme. Alex was motivated by a mistaken belief that his son Buster would not receive the insurance money if Alex committed suicide himself. 
More and more embezzlement was uncovered as Alex and Buster desperately tried to sell off and dispose of assets. Alex signed over power of attorney to his son Buster, but a judge ordered the assets to be frozen and they could not overturn it. At this point, Alex was named as a person of interest in the murders of Paul and Maggie. It would seem his world was crumbling around him. He was indicted for their murders. The motive, they said, being it was a distraction from his financial crimes, which were beginning to go public and to also garner sympathy from the public. He pleaded not guilty, saying he had not been home at the time of the murders. But, you know, his voice was heard in an audio recording Paul had made that very night that he was murdered, and that recording proved otherwise. He also had gunshot residue on his clothing. The GPS location of his vehicle places him at the scene. All evidence points to Alex having murdered his own son and wife just to try to distract from his other crimes. You know, I just don't know what to say about that. And really, the trial is barely over, but he was convicted of both murders and is sentenced to live without the possibility of parole. He has also been disbarred from practicing law. You see, this family that had built a legacy so many generations back, the first generations that worked hard to build up their empire and have the influence and respect of their area, only for the last two generations to crumble it into ruin, all for greed, excess, and selfishness so very quickly. For this story, I don't really have an analysis. I, I don't really have a whole lot to say, but I do have some wisdom for my younger kids. As I've gotten older and I look back on my life, I distinctly remember a time when I thought money solved all problems. I used to think, you know, if I were only rich, then this or that problem would go away. As I sit here in the middle of my life, I have come to reflect and realize that sometimes money isn't everything. Your friends and family, or at least the people who love you, matter the most. Your health, your heart, and passions matter more than any money ever will. Sure, money cures a lot of ailments, but it cannot buy you peace. Just remember that. It will not buy your peace. It cannot buy you true and loyal friendships. Money cannot keep the ones you love completely safe. In the case of this family, it is very much the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Too much money poisons everything. Money and power certainly didn't save this family or the people whose lives they affected and ended. If you have a safe roof over your head, food in your belly, loved ones to share a laugh with and to make good memories with, a job to pay you and life to certainly keep you humble, consider yourself lucky. This case has been in the headlines for a while now, and while I keep up with many, this one I didn't so much, so I hope I did it some justice. I hope I made you guys proud and perhaps shed some new light on any part of it. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And 
whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs> 